His mercy is more. Amen? Amen. Well, you can go ahead and uh, grab your Bible. Hope you have one with you. If you don't, we have some in the back. Uh, I teach, we teach uh, from the ESV. We have some ESVs in the back. Um, Grab one. That's what they're there for. We're in Amos chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible, ask for some help. If you need help finding the text, Amos is one of the minor prophets, kind of about three-quarters way uh, through the Bible, but ask for some help. Uh, We're in chapter 4, verses 6 through 13 this morning. Chapter 4. Verses 6 through 13, if you ever want to catch up on any of our sermons that you may have missed, especially as we're studying a a book like this, uh, you can check out the Spotify, Uh, you can go to the, um, we have YouTube, we post them there. But I'm going to read our text for us today, I'm going to ask the Lord to work, and then by God's grace, You will hear from the Lord. Amos 4, 6 through 13 reads this. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain to one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. And I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel, for behold, he who forms the mountain and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness displayed through Christ. We thank you for the kindness displayed through your word that we have, where we we are able to be given instruction. We're we're able to to see your your magnitude, your majesty, 
Father, I thank You for texts like this that just scream God is sovereign. God, we thank You that You are a God who knows us, knows all things, and You love us. So Father, I, I pray that as You know us, You would work in us. Those that need encouragement, would You bring it? Those that need conviction, would You bring it? Father, what we know not, would You teach us? What we are not, would You make us? What we have not, would You give us by Your grace, for Your glory? In Christ's name, God's people said, Amen. So I find it no coincidence that the Lord would have us looking at Amos 4, 6-13 through 13 today as we joyfully commission Kat Reese as a missionary to Sweden. This text is one of those texts that should make you stop and consider the absolute power and authority of God. Uh, This text bleeds the preeminence of God's sovereignty over all of creation. It bangs the drum to the beat, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. When I say God is sovereign, I simply mean God is in control of everything. Everything. In other words, there is nothing that God does not control with absolute authority. I think Louis Burkhoff captures this well in his definition of God's sovereignty from his volume on systematic theology. I want to read this for you because I believe it's helpful. He says this, The sovereignty of God is strongly emphasized in Scripture. He is represented as the Creator and His will as the cause of all things. In virtue of His creative work, heaven and earth and all that they contain, they belong to Him. He is clothed with absolute authority over the hosts of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. He upholds all things with His almighty power and determines the ends which they are designed to serve. He rules as king in the most absolute sense of the word. And all things are dependent on him and subservient to him. In quotes. As a church, as believers, we all need this reminder today. Because there are real and present circumstances that each of us who are members of CCF or believers in Christ are faced with. Things going on in the world around us. I'm going to give a couple. This is definitely not an exhaustive list. But one, when we are faced with medical decisions, we must remember that God is sovereign. And I'm just going to give a quick disclaimer here, right? Our decisions should be made after sincere prayer while trusting God to reveal what's best for us individually. And when we have made our decision, 
we must not impose our decision on others. Instead, we must trust the sovereignty of the Lord to pervade in their lives as well and allow them to make the right decision for them. You can read between the lines there. Second, we must remember that God is sovereign when we see the tragedies in the world around us. The chaos in Afghanistan. The lack of water and sustainable food sources in many countries. The list goes on. Third, when we look at the turmoil in our own country, the division, the corruption in politics, the turbulent situation at the border, uh, the media outlet's disordered focus that makes it rather challenging to get the true facts. We need to be reminded that God indeed is sovereign. When faced with personal decisions or issues that bring us anxiety as individuals, maybe it's a family member being diagnosed with an illness, maybe relational issues within your family that you deal with individually, maybe for you it's financial struggles, maybe it's death. Whatever the uncertainty is, we all need to be reminded that God is sovereign. Finally, when we send missionaries, we need reminders to trust the sovereign God to protect and care for those missionaries while tangibly using the church as an extension of care. We don't just pray and say, well, God's going to take care of it. No, we get active and we care for them tangibly as the Lord shall lead. There are many other reasons why we need constant reminders that God is indeed sovereign. And for those in here who may not worship the sovereign God, my prayer is today that you will turn to Him and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation. You will see the sovereign God. You will see your need for a sovereign God. Thus far in our study of Amos, we've been reminded of God's power displayed in numerous ways. We've seen the devastation the judgment of God brings to those who are hard-hearted and reject His ways. Uh, we've seen the intentionality of God's judgment, learning that God does not just haphazardly distribute judgment he is intentional in his distribution. It's pointed and deliberate. We've seen that God's judgment is indeed deserved because of humanity's sinfulness. God is perfectly just and justified in his distribution of judgment and exercising judgment. Uh, this was true in Amos' day. This is true in our day today. And today in our prophecy, we see God remind the people of Israel 
of his divine sovereignty, of his all-powerful ways that are now displayed in different ways that should have provoked Israel to return to him. The Israelites were God's chosen people. As we were reminded last week, they had decided to rebel against God in many different ways. They were oppressive towards the disadvantaged around them. Uh, They used their shortcomings for their own personal gains. God's people were overcome with self-serving selfishness that corrupted them to the core. And over and over throughout this prophecy, throughout Amos, we see God reminding Israel of who he is and what exactly he has done. He shows the patience, the provision that he has shown to them. And brothers and sisters, what a reminder it is for us too as we personally reflect on the patience that God has demonstrated to each one of us in our own lives. Think about that for a moment. Of your own rebellion. Of your own hard-heartedness towards certain areas. The way that the Lord has been patient with you. This text starts with a reminder of what God had done in the past to invoke the Israelites' repentance. Uh, Here, God is presenting a reminder of past lessons that should have been enough. He says, I'm going to remind you of these things, and they should be enough to cause you to come back to me, to, to see who I am, to see my care, my provision, my protection, my sovereignty. So, so come back to the safety that is found with me. We're all familiar with this sort of dialogue, right? We've probably all been in conversations where we've said, hey, don't you remember when, blank, you know, fill in the blank there. Like, don't you remember when this happened? And and a lot of times this phrase is often used to prevent someone from doing something that may cause them harm. Here's what God is doing here. Makes it abundantly clear that he himself was the cause of every calamity that would have been a familiar memory to the Israelites. Like These things weren't far removed where they would have forgotten. The list here that we will read here in a moment would have been very familiar to the people of Israel in this time. Verses 6 through 11, he lists five punishments that Israel had experienced. And these five punishments present an overarching description of God's sovereignty over all that is. Here we see that these calamities that are listed are not simply natural disasters. Instead, they are definite acts of God. He's saying, hey, I did this. I did this. If you're taking notes, you can mark these five things under the heading, a punishment paired with a picture of God's sovereignty. A punishment paired with a picture of God's sovereignty. Let's look at verse 6 here. 
It says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. And we're going to see this consistent throughout this. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Here we take notice of the first punishment that was exercised by God towards Israel. He uses this phrase, the cleanness of teeth, to reference of his withholding food by way of famine. Essentially saying, like, your teeth are clean because you don't have anything to eat. You don't have anything to get your teeth dirty on because I've taken away your food. Look at the language here. If you've got your Bible, underline that. I, I, I gave you. I gave you. And then at the end, he says, declares the Lord. There's no mincing of words here. God's not hesitant. He's not embarrassed about what he has done. He's saying, I am the one who caused famine. He's not disconcerted to say this. He's not worried about what they're going to think. And I think too often as Christians, we try to apologize for God. We want to apologize for the bad side of God. We want to apologize for the wrath of God. We want to try and soften the blow when oftentimes people really need to hear the harsh realities of what rebellion to Creator God will bring. Here God reminds Israel of the punishment here, which was famine. And the picture of God's complete sovereignty over the food. Hey, just a simple application that we can all take home. I mean, this is why we, we, we give thanks before we eat. Because we take into remembrance that everything we have, every single morsel, hey, if you've been without food, if you've ever been hungry, which I know most of you probably haven't, you would really see that everything we are given is a gift from God. Notice, too, how God shows the reasoning for this punishment, which, as I mentioned, will be consistent throughout these punishments. He says, yet you did not return to me. I mean, here God is showing that his reasoning behind the punishment were to compel Israel to return. He says, I I did this so that you would see me. You would I I removed distractions. I I removed things that would hopefully clear the path where you would see me. You would see my work. You would see my power. You would find yourself in utter dependence where all you could do was say, God, help me. But they wouldn't. They wouldn't change. They wouldn't repent. They continued to rebel. Continued to chase their own ways. I wonder how many of us in here have become hard-hearted while refusing to repent and turn to God in certain situations. I wonder how many of us in here have 
continued to see things happening around us and say, well, that's just a matter of circumstance. Rather than it pointing us to need the power of Creator God. You see more descriptions as we look at verses 7 through 8. He says in verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. He said, I would send rain. Underline that in your Bible. He says, I would send it there in one city and I would send no rain on another city. One field would have rain. The, the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. The second punishment mentioned is drought, which provides a picture of God's sovereignty over rain. Look at the details here. God's saying, I would send, one, I would send rain in, in this one city. But, but I wouldn't send rain over here. There's intentionality that's being shown here. He said, I'd send it on a field here, but not over here. Now, I, I lived in Florida for a little while. In Florida, during the summer, it rains just about every day. For a short period of time, if you've been in Florida, you're shaking your head right now. And it'd be really interesting sometimes because you could literally 10 feet in, you're in the rain, 10 feet, 20 feet out, you're out of the rain. Be like little rain clouds dumping rain in one section and not dumping it over here. And I, when I think of this and when I used to see that, it would, just, it would blow my mind of the just sovereignty of God saying rain here, not there. And there's purpose behind this. There was purpose being displayed here. God says here, I, I controlled the rain in certain areas so that crops in certain areas would prosper and then in the others, guess what? They wouldn't prosper. We kind of see this uh, sequence of uh, the, the famine and how they lacked food and how it all came to be here. He says, I didn't give it water. Uh, if you've ever tried to raise crops or maybe you've tried to Keep a little plant in your house. My wife loves plants and always saying, this one needs watering. Because plants and vegetation need to be watered. So God says, I'm not going to give rain. I'm not going to give water. Because then that will contribute to the lack of food here. He adds here that I took your source for drinking water. You had no water. You had to search from city to city. I mean, just picture here the chaos. Lack of sustainable water. He says, I was in control. I did these things. I did these things to get your attention and show my power, but yet you did not return to me. You wouldn't return Israel. We read on in verse 9. We see God's sovereignty over crops and produce as God develops a picture of vegetation being destroyed. He says, I struck you with blight and mildew, 
your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locust devoured. Yet you did not return to me. Once again, we see this being displayed. This use of the phrase and the word blight here is often described, uh, used to describe the effect of a hot, dry wind that blows from the east, withering the plants of the day. He says, I sent this wind to wither, to destroy the plants. He says, it's my sovereignty, it was my hand that caused your gardens, your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, everything to be destroyed. Once again, we see the reminder, God's people would not repent. Verse 10, we see this picture of war. We see God's sovereignty over the lives of humanity and the animals. He says, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. And I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Notice here, too, that he he hasn't stopped saying, hey, this is my words. This isn't Amos talking. It's Amos speaking on behalf of the Lord God, declares the Lord. The word pestilence here is a word to describe a fatal disease that would have overcome the people. It's used here as a reminder to uh, what had happened to Egypt in the plagues that had overtaken them. He says, I sent plagues. I sent plagues to Egypt. I sent plagues to you. Then he goes on, he says, I killed your young men with the sword. He says, I, I controlled the outcome of the battle. A good reminder of this is in Proverbs 21.31 where we read the horse is made ready for the day of the battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. God is in control. God is sovereign over wartime. What a powerful God we serve. He says, I control everything. In time of battle. He says I control who lives. Who dies. What animals make it out. Which ones don't. He uses this phrase. The stench of your camp. Which implies that death from disease and warfare. Really overwhelmed their camps. It was, it was so strong. That it was overwhelming. It had a horrendous smell. It overtook them, reminded them of the death that was taking place. In verse 11, we're reminded of the scene of Sodom and Gomorrah mentioned in Genesis 19. Uh, for your, if you're not familiar with that story, Sodom and Gomorrah was a, a pagan area that practiced many deplorable sins regularly. It was so riddled with sin that God destroyed it completely. Destroyed everything there. 
Uh, Genesis 19, 24 says this, right? Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. He says, thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. And then he says in verse 26, but Lot's wife looked back and she began, became a pillar of salt. So if you remember the story, right, God had told Lot, his family said, escape, I'm going to destroy it. There will be a remnant if you leave, if you turn, if you, if you, you turn away from the sinful city and you pursue me. He says it's, it's so horrendous, like don't even look back. And we get this picture of Lot's wife looking back. And she's instantly destroyed. I wonder if we take sin that serious in our own lives. Where we flee. We, we run. We pursue Christ. The cross of Christ. The forgiveness of sins offered by Him and Him alone. Or do we play around with it? Paul tells Timothy, he says, flee wicked things. Pursue righteousness. And brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to do the same. God reminds Israel here of this time where he destroyed many of them through means that may have been similar to Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, I often overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. You see this picture, right? This total destruction. While God remains sovereign over all creation. See, oftentimes we think we can hide from God. We think that we can go over to our, our, our sinful areas, that we practice our sins, we'll, we'll go to whatever room, we'll, we'll have conversations with those people that we think God will not see. God will not know. But here we see that God is present. And God has power over every single area of this world. And Satan is only allowed the slack that God gives him to do what he will do. And at any point, God has all authority to, to snatch that slack back and have Satan run off cowering like a pitiful little pup. God is in complete control. He is sovereign. This is Sodom and Gomorrah. I'll sovereign. I'll destroy it like that. It says, just as I did then, I can do now. Brothers and sisters, do not buy into the lie that you can hide from God in darkness. God knows and sees everything. 
We must also take note here of God referring to Israel as a brand plucked out of the burning. And here we see this picture of a, a, a stick being pulled from a blazing, all-encompassing fire and, and, and set aside purposefully. So I pulled out a remnant. He says, God graciously saves some. God graciously saved some. Just as God had saved Lot in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, here we read that even in God's wrath, God is telling them that there will be a remnant. There will be salvation. I will pull out the brand from the burning. But Israel here, they, they still wouldn't repent. They still would not repent. He says, I extended undeserved mercy. He says, I've extended and, and shown my kindness, my love, my grace. He says, but you wouldn't come back to me. Let's take this text and put it in just context of just biblical theology. Remember that God had chosen Israel to be covenant people. Okay, not because they were awesome. Not because they were special. Not because they did something great. I mean, they were a train wreck. Constantly throughout Scripture, we read of their shortcomings, their lack of faithfulness, their lack of obedience, and God's continual provision, continual protection over their lives. They had not done anything to deserve the title God's chosen people, but God had chosen them. He had cared for them, protected them, guided them, but still they rebelled. Taken together, the punishments of Amos 4, 6-11 through reflect the curses of the Mosaic covenant listed in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Emphasizing here Israel's violation of the covenant that God had made with them. So what is God to do? What will God do here? He says in verse 12, God essentially says, because you have broken the covenant, you've rebelled against me, I will come to you and you will meet me in judgment. Look at verse 12. Thus, therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Essentially, God says, I'm personally going to come and to distribute punitive action that is deserved because of your sinful ways. He says, get ready to meet me. Prepare to meet the sovereign God. Word used for prepare speaks specifically, specifically for getting the heart ready to meet God. 
It's the same language used in Exodus 19 as God tells the people to get ready to meet him on Mount Sinai. So it's important to note here, it's not just their actions. They don't just need to to get some, some actions right. They don't need to just change their morality. It's a heart change that needs to happen here. It's their whole being. Their core of who they are. Their core of their existence. And this would have been a sobering, staggering, monumental proclamation that would have been declared over the people hearing this prophecy. To hear, God is coming for you is a dreadful thing. Right? Like you haven't repented. You, you, you have not changed. I've given you time. Time and time again to change your ways, but yet you will not repent. So here I come in judgment. Once again, this would have been a familiar recollection of events for these people. Imagine their own sinfulness being exposed, their own failures. Their own ways of rebellion that this would have invoked. The writer of Hebrews plainly reminds us all. In verse 31 of chapter 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing. Brothers and sisters, here we must see in whole as even another act of God's mercy. Because God has sent Amos to prophesy, to proclaim to the people, to say, listen, pay attention. You're you're living in rebellion You've got to change because God is coming for you. God didn't deserve them that. He didn't owe them anything. They knew the truth. They knew what was expected. And he says the people, you've got to prepare your hearts. Not just your Actions to meet the sovereign God of the universe. This section ends with a beautiful reminder again of the great power of God over all things. Verse 13, it says, For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the winds and declares to man, What is his thought who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth? The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. This is often called a a doxology because it reminds us, reminded them of the power once again of God. He says God is the creator who forms the mountains and creates the wind. 
says he reveals who he is, right? He declares to man what is his thoughts. See, God does not hide himself from man. God has displayed, he's revealed himself in natural revelation through creation. And then through special revelation through his word. You want to know God, read the Bible. Learn who God is. He controls everything. He says he makes the morning darkness. He is everywhere present. He treads on the heights of the earth. And we see this word hosts used again, which refers to God's mighty armies. He's got an army of hosts. And that army has reinforcements. And they have reinforcements. He is all-powerful. This portion of Scripture screams, God is sovereign. God reminds them of the past judgments paired with His sovereignty over all creation. He reminds them that their punishment is deserved here. Reminds them of the great power over and over again. He gives them a warning. He says, I've demonstrated my power. I've saved a remnant and you still have not repented. Turn back to me so now I will bring a coming judgment that you cannot escape. That was true then and it is true now. There will be judgment for all of humanity. All of humanity will face judgment. Hebrews 9.27 And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You know, one thing that we have in common with every single person in this world is that we're all going to die. We will all die one day. Some sooner than others, in different ways, but we will all die. And when we die, we will face this sovereign God. The, the, the God that we just read about. The God who is sovereign over every single thing in the universe, the creator of the universe, to where nothing exists that he does not say, mine. We will face him one day. But praise be to God. The writer of Hebrews continues on. It says in verse 28, So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting on Him. Jesus Christ came to die for the sins of many. He came to give His life a ransom. Your sin, my sin, needs a payment. We have earned judgment. The wages of sin is death. 
And there's nothing that we can do. There's no good deed. There's no act of kindness. There's no getting ourselves together apart from the work of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are hopeless. But we are reminded here the kindness displayed on the cross of Calvary. And that the kindness that is displayed as Jesus will return one day to fully redeem those who have trusted in His work, His finished work, for their salvation. Praise be to God. See, only a sovereign God could design a sovereign plan of salvation. We wouldn't have been able to figure it out. God had to save us. And He does that through Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the God that we get to proclaim. The God that is all-powerful. That is sovereign over everything. And that has provided a way for reconciliation. That apart from Christ, our judgment would be destruction as well. See, Christ absorbs the wrath that we deserve. He he takes the judgment reserved for us on Himself. He took it. It is finished. It is done. When we confess our sins, our need, we repent and turn from our sinful ways and pursue the sovereign God, only then will we be made whole. As Christians, this should be a delight to share with others. It's not a duty. It is delight. We should be constantly looking for opportunities to make much of our great God's name. And brother and sister Christian, I I ask you if you are doing this. Is this the God you are proclaiming? Whether it's overseas like Kat and others who are called to global missions. Whether it is across the street to your neighbor. Whether it is to your children at home. Is this the God that that you are proclaiming, that you are trusting in? Do they see that model in your home? Is it at your job? Are you proclaiming this God in your dorms at school? In your classrooms at school? No matter where God has called you to, are you calling others to turn to the sovereign God? My final question is, have you trusted in the sovereign God? So not only are you proclaiming, but the heart of the matter is, have you truly trusted? Cat and other missionaries will go across the world to unfamiliar places and unfamiliar cultures. 
They need to be reminded, just as we all do, that this is the God that will protect them, that will provide for them, and that they get to proclaim to the nations. And brothers and sisters, I pray that we all would do the same. Let's pray.